food and drink. And a certain philosopher, Cretanicus, coined the phrase, famous for the phrase, God is dead. Often misunderstood, is he not making an ontological claim? Nietzsche isn't declaring that, that God has somehow metaphysically changed or anything about the existence of God. No, God's making a practical claim. As a philosopher, he's doing what all philosophers are supposed to do. He's, he's trying to help people be free from unnecessary burdens, free from from deception so that they can flourish as human beings in a happy life. And what he's declaring with God is dead is that we, we no longer need the concept of God. We, we no longer need a, a God who's going to help us how to live in our morality or for happiness. Well, God's been replaced with science, reason, human instinct. individualism, where the, the me inside is, is the, 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 the true reality, and I need the rest of the world to conform to who I think I am. If you think about this briefly, the world sees that we need God so that I is all I have to offer. It makes the I into God. We, we all worship this. We, we, we are going to align ourselves with some greater reality. We, we get rid of God. The me is what becomes what the Lord
country where it's consistent. You can teach God to die in order for it so that I can hear you cry as I teach you. Or you can teach God to die to sin and sin to keep you from sinning. Do you need God to die so that I can then pursue whatever I want, however I want, the way I want, God to keep it at some level, some kind of distance so that I can still be me. No, no, no. You are not God. But He sets me apart for Him. Acting as a light into the darkness. This morning's text, we're looking at really a second half of, of a unit. Last week, we looked at Christ's declaration We saw all the mockery. They hung a sign over his head. Behold, the king of the Jews. It was mockery, but a true statement. We saw many say he saves others when he saved himself. If you are the Messiah, save yourself. We're looking at the second half of this unit. If you're with us, we're walking through Luke. We're reminded that we're coming to the end after a couple of weeks today. What's helpful for us this morning? A great theme of Scripture. before the resurrection. So we see that this, as we look at the text, we're going to organize it in three different words. Promise, teaching, response. Promise, teaching, response. If you go back to verse 39, you'll see one of the symbols who were hanged railed against him and the other rebuked him. Well, if we, if we go back a little while, last week's text, notice he's criminal. He's counted among the transgressors, as Isaiah 53, which we also read several weeks ago. Here, again, uh, a mockery. One of the criminals, verse 39, railed against him, mocking him, angry. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. No. As we consider last week, the, the declaration, save yourself, well, no, he, he's coming to declare what he's doing. He, he's coming to forgive others.
moment, you're about to meet your maker. You, you're dying on a cross. And you're going to rail against this righteous man? There's an opportunity for reflection. Notice what else that criminal says. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. You're going to die. You are dying in the midst of this. This minutes, hours, you're going to be dead. Do you not fear God? And notice this other confession, and we indeed justly. The two criminals now speaking against each other. The one speaking against Jesus, the, the other criminal speaking against that criminal. We're dying justly. We deserve this. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. There's a recognition of this criminal. He cannot claim this is unjust. He cannot claim I've done nothing wrong. But then he contrasts the two criminals with Jesus. But this man, speaking of Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we, we, we walked through the trial of Jesus. And over and over again, Pilate and Herod were trying to get rid of Jesus. In, in the sense that the chief priests kept coming up with false accusations. And as they heard these accusations, they said there's no grounding for any of these accusations. And over and over again, you heard on the lips of Pilate. This man is not guilty of anything you've charged him with. This man is, is innocent. He, he, he has not done any of the things you've said. Over and over again, Luke has helped us see he is a righteous man. Pilate is speaking more true than he knows. Luke wants us to hear yet again, there's nothing Jesus has done that could possibly deserve this death. He, he is, he's righteous. He, he's not up there with justice. This man has done nothing wrong. We hear those words yet again. He is being unjustly punished among criminals. Then he turns to Jesus. So first he rebukes the man railing against Jesus, and now he turns to Jesus. Uh, this request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Three men, one criminal who, who's angry at, at Jesus because he's not helping him, another criminal who's angry at that guy for railing against Jesus, one righteous man, two guilty, one fears God, and now this request, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, that's a profession of faith. All right, he has a, this is the king of the Jews over his head, but what does this guy know? Because his faith is certainly going beyond his sight. Because Jesus is hanging on a cross about to die. And, and this criminal, whatever he knows, is asking, when you get your kingdom over against the clarity that you're dying, remember me. This is faith that goes beyond what he sees. It's a faith based upon some knowledge of some truth that Jesus has come to claim he's king. He is Jesus who's made many promises and is taught with authority. We don't know what he, he understood already. But he, he can see that Jesus is innocent. The righteous man. 
undeserving. And there's something he understands that says this isn't the end for him. There's a kingdom coming, and he wants Jesus to remember him. What a contrast with the, the Romans who put the sign King of the Jews. What a contrast with the other criminal that says, save yourself. What a contrast with the chief of priests who are, who are mocking him. This is a profession of faith. What a request to know Christ is going to have his kingdom. And then we see what Jesus says. We see an affirmation of faith. Truly, I say to you. Jesus is giving him a strong affirmation with those two first declarations. I am saying to you, truly, the same word we have for amen. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What a promise. Last week when the women were walking with Jesus, lamenting, mourning, Jesus told them, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves, for the persecution that's coming. He doesn't promise a paradise here and now. He promises a paradise much later, after death. Notice the man asked to be remembered of the kingdom, and Jesus says, well, today, immediately, you, you will be with me in paradise. We, we really have to wrestle with what this word means and, and, and what we associate with it, because we, we do have a, a tendency to still want some kind of prosperity gospel. For me, every time I hear this word, I associate it with my favorite song about cheeseburgers. I like mine with lettuce and tomato, Heinz 57. French fried potatoes. Let's be clear. Margaritaville is a sad, sad place. We're looking for paradise. Not the one we imagined. We're, we're looking for paradise as promised. And what's clear here, today you will be with me. It doesn't matter where you think that might be. Paradise is anywhere you can be with God. Paradise in Genesis is God walking and talking and being with man without sin. In Revelation, paradise is God declaring, I am with you, my people, and you, my people, are with me. Sin is removed. If we want to think about paradise, it's marked by what's not there. No sin. No pain. No more consequence of sin. We think about paradise, it's, it's marked by the things that are gone, that we too often associate with, with, with paradise. But more so, it's being with God. Being in His presence. Friends, praise God for the gospel you can believe in today and, and no longer have to suffer the punishment for sin. You can be forgiven today and know you will never suffer the punishment for sin. You'll still have the presence of sin. 
It'll still hinder your worship. It'll still hinder your, your obedience. It'll still hinder your relationships. It'll still hinder your, your enjoyment of paradise. The reason we declare, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, is we get so frustrated with how our sin keeps us from enjoying regular, constant pro- presence of, with God. That's what paradise is. What a, what a promise. I believe this man has an incredible faith. Something incredible is looking beyond the exact thing he sees, but something he, he's looking for, the promise of God. There's a king and a kingdom coming. Just remember me, the man says. And Jesus says, no, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Do we want Christ's paradise or do we want him to bless us with the things that we most desire in this world. It's an incredible promise. Let's continue and look at what I'm going to put under the word completion here. Verses 44 to 46. And there's three things that are completed. One, judgment is completed. The the worship is completed. And Christ's earthly ministry is completed. Three significant events. One, the sun stops shining. The temple curtain torn in two. And Jesus gives up his last breath. Let's stop. Let's start with the easy one. The sun stops shining. Verse 44. Now it's about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. From about noon to three, the sunshine ended. That's remarkable to, to consider that for, for three hours, the, the people, we don't know if this was universal, we don't know if it's just this land, but darkness covered the land. It's, it's midday at noon. When the sun should be shining brightest at, at its highest point, the, the sun stops shining its light. You have to remember Luke has been put together by eyewitness accounts. He, he would have gone back and asked as he interviewed folks to make sure he gives us uh, certainty of the things that have happened. That's how he begins the gospel. Here he tells us there's a three-hour window. Well, why would the sun stop shining? Some have said, Jesus is the light of the world, and as he's giving up his last breath, there's a way in which the darkness represents the the light being temporarily put out. Okay, some biblical themes going in there. I'm not sure that's that's, that's the connection we want, but some biblical themes coming together. Uh, Others I I looked at or have heard declare it's creation revolting against us. Declaring how could you, the, the sun, revolting against our rebelling and killing God, the creator of the sun. It could be a way of creation mourning and grieving as the creator is on the cross. I think fourth, the one that seems most obvious from Amos 8, it is a witness to God's judgment against our sin. As we think about what's happening here at this event, the culmination of all our rebellion is just being displayed clearly. Man, since Genesis 3, has been rebelling against God, moving further and further away from God, de- de- declaring ourselves over God, 
And there's been times where God has handed us over to our sin. There's been times where God has graciously called us back to himself. Here, the creation, creatures, specifically image bearers, those who are given a special, unique responsibility to fill this earth with his glory, a special responsibility to, to, to spread his glory through all the earth. We're, we're trying to quench his glory by killing the light. Killing the sun. Now, many will ask, what happened here? Was it a, a natural event or is this supernatural? All right, if it's a natural event, God ordained that an eclipse would happen at just the time Jesus is being crucified. That's pretty amazing. But I don't believe we need to think it's a natural event. I believe we understand that God, who upholds the entire universe, causes the sun to stop shining as he said he would, as a declaration of judgment against our sin. God promised darkness in the midday in Amos chapter 8. It was meant to be a sign of the judgment for the people of Israel. In Amos 8, he declares, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And then in Amos 8.10, I will make it like the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, for an only sun. Yeah, I believe the darkness is a declaration of the grief, the, the mourning, for, for the judgment that God is supposed to be bringing upon the people of Israel. What's actually happening is God is bringing a judgment upon his own son, the righteous one. It's a declaration that God's judgment is being satisfied in the death of Christ. But what we should really reflect upon, what we should take from this, is the darkness is a representation of how our sin is seen by God. The darkness depicts our own hearts. The darkness shows God's judgment there's a completion God's judgment for our sin verse 45 the, the second statement I, I want us to hang out here for a bit and this really is the verse why I decided to break it up because I, I want to make sure we take some time here again Luke in just little words he was crucified well that we need to unpack that a little bit but but here the curtain is torn in two there's, there's, there's a completion to the entire sacramental system. There's a completion to, to worship. There's a completion to access. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, the curtain is referring to the uh, obstacle that, that kept people from going into the Holy of Holies. The, the Old Testament worship was built in a, in a sense of it was designed to show us distance, to, to protect God's holiness. There was only one person once a year who could go into the most holy place, and there's a curtain there to protect anybody else from going in there because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And then once he got past that curtain, there's a place for the priests and a place for the Jewish men, and there's a place for the, the women and the Gentiles. And there's a, a distance being taught with the temple. We have a difficult time with this because we don't really have a sense of holy space or holy place. We kind of do, though. You, you do want to get closest to the action at a sporting event where we oftentimes worship. 
You want to get closest to a concert where we sometimes worship. We, we want to be near and close and experience things close up to. We have a sense of reverence and a holy space, but not like what Scripture teaches us. Where God is at the center. And the, and the whole order of, of Old Testament worship is designed to teach us there's, there's distance. If we go back to Genesis 3, what's the consequence for Adam and Eve sinning? Well, the, the one promised is they would die, and, and that surely happened. But the other consequence is God took them out of the garden and then had to put a boundary up so they would not go back into the garden. A consequence of sin, a consequence of our rebellion is now there's a distance that we've created and God actually promotes because he is a holy and righteous God and we as sinners cannot come into his immediate presence. We see this most clearly on Mount Sinai. Moses, who alone was able to go up to the top, invited up in a special grace. And what marks Mount Sinai? Two words, distance and fear. They're terrified to go even near the mountain as Israel hears the thunder and sees the lightning and God speaks. And even Moses, who gets to go up to that special place, access the the closest access to god he asks can i see your glory and god says no you cannot you can only see my hind part it's all meant to teach us he's a holy god who's perfect righteous and just it's hard for us to keep these two things together that he can be so holy and so loving There's a way in which we look back in the Old Testament and he's a holy God who says you cannot come near to me or else you'll be consumed because of your sin. And there's a loving God who continues to pursue us and make promises. And and you, you, you feel this friction. The holy God who knows we cannot come into his presence and the loving God who who keeps pursuing us and inviting us back to him. And then we see the temple that God introduced at Mount Sinai, it's built with this structure where you're, keep, you're kept from a distance. Well, this is why that passage read earlier in Hebrews 10 is so important. If you really want to think about what this looks like, we highly encourage you to meditate upon the book of Hebrews. Christ, the perfect high priest, because he didn't have to make atonement for his own sin, was righteous. The perfect sacrifice, because he is without sin. He is a human who was not sin, and he can die in the place of our sins. In, in the true temple, the, the true presence of God is what Hebrews tells us. We draw now near to God. We're not kept back at distance. We're not supposed to be kept back in fear. We're supposed to draw near because what Christ has accomplished in his temple, what Hebrews says is his own flesh, the perfect man. He, with his own blood, made the once-for-all sacrifice that purifies us so we have assurance. And he, as the perfect high priest, is the mediator forever. When Luke records simply that the temple curtain was torn in two, 
we realize we now are given a new access to God that no one in the Old Testament ever had. An access to come to God as Father, to draw near to Him, to enter boldly into His presence, because we know, unlike the Old Testament saints, that the sacrifice needed has come to truly take away our sin, to wash us so we have a full assurance. When it says the temple curtain was torn in two, Christ has accomplished what every sacrifice in the Old Testament was meant to be pointing to. All the sins that God had overlooked previously are now paid for only in Christ. And all the sins that we've committed are fully paid for by Christ. The temple curtain was torn in two. We now have a new way of worship. Praise God, our worship isn't bloody. Praise God, our worship isn't from a distance. Our our worship is now we get to go into the presence of God. We, We get to go and desire to behold him face to face in his glory. How? Because Christ has removed our sin from us by taking upon himself Then he rose again, ascended to the Father, and sent his Holy Spirit to actually heal us, to indwell us, to make us truly holy. We now worship in the presence of God. We have the Holy Spirit to actually grow up into more holiness so that we can grow to enjoy that presence more. That's why Paul tells in Galatians to keep in step with the Spirit. challenge I have for Christians why do we act like we still need to stay distant from God why why, why do we still think there's some kind of safe distance have we adopted a weird theology of a God of the gap where where God is helpful where we want him to be but we, we don't want him to take control of every aspect because we're not sure we can trust him I fear that's why Christians continue to remain distant from God. We either don't believe he can forgive us or that he will forgive us. There's a mistrust. Are we trying to enjoy the life Christ purchased for us from a distance? Here over and over, the charge of Hebrews, because of this action, the temple curtain being torn in two, enter boldly into the presence of God? Do you enter boldly in prayer, in worship, with an assurance because of what Christ accomplished? We're we're supposed to go in boldly to enjoy nearness. We look to Jesus. He has completed all access because he died once for all to tear that curtain and now he's at the right hand of the Father so that we can go up to him. The third thing completed, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is what we believe is the last of seven sayings of Jesus that we have recorded. The first one, Luke, is also recorded. 
Father, forgive them for they know what they do. That, that appears to be the first thing Jesus ha- says on the cross that's recorded. The, the seventh thing is this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The, the other six are recorded in other gospels. Each gospel takes what is, it did happen and, 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 and like a good author presents the, 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 the events he, they want to present for, for the, the truths they're, de- they're declaring. All one truth, all one gospel. But the seventh statement, he calls out with a loud voice. And again, he, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It begins with a declaration of Father. It ends with a declaration of Father. He's speaking in the most personal way, and he appears to be quoting and alluding to Psalm 31, which is a psalm of refuge where, where, where the, the psalmist is crying out, Help me, O God. And in the psalm it says, O Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus says, instead of Yahweh, Lord, he says, Father. And what makes this particular prayer unusual is it, it really reads more like a commitment at a funeral. At the end of it, I usually say something like, this is the graveside. I commit this body to the ground. Here, Jesus seems to be crying out as a son to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a, there's a commitment to his own death. There, there's a handful of things we really need to wrestle with here. Is one, I, I wonder if Jesus is doing this because the Romans couldn't kill him because he's God. Is he who gives up his own life in the midst of this? Is he who is authoritative as to how, when, where he would die? Most importantly for us, we can see here, it is the will of Jesus to die for us. Again, he, he, he didn't come to save himself. He came to save us. This is the, the final, the, the completion of his earthly ministry. He gives up his life. He gives up his breath. He gives up his spirit for us. He's committed his life to saving us. He's committing himself now, Father, I, I give up my last breath. Notice how he's sovereign even over his death. We can look elsewhere and see how Christ before this, has declared, Father, I am returning to the glory I had with you before I came down. There's a way in which we can see this earthly stage of his ministry complete. He came to be like us in every way by being born of the virgin. He came to live the life we refused to live by being perfectly obedient, being the righteous man, innocent. And then he dies on the cross, and here he's giving up his last breath. There's a handful of responses. This is uh, typical of the story. We see uh, the following action. Uh, the centurion saw what had taken place and praised God, saying, Certainly this man was Jesus. Verse 28, and all the crowd that had assembled were discussing this. When they saw what had taken place, they put upon Jesus a crown. And all the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee distributed gifts and washed their feet, anointing them with 
49 really goes back to how this teaches on salt, right? Simon is sharing his salt, and Jesus is condemning their pride and using folks who are there. It ends with them actually standing at a distance and watching him. And you see the crowds, and again, the, the people here, it's kind of hard to understand. Are they, are they there just to kind of gawk? Are they there to wonder if he's the Messiah? Are they, are they, are they there as the, the antagonist who called for Barabbas? Big crowd. After they've seen everything, they, 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 they want the spectacle. They want to see the arrest, which is usually a symbol of, of warning or grief. probably be acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, would not know much of Yahweh and all his promises, or at least was was, was not of, of that descent. The centurion Saul would have taken note. Did he know there was an earthquake? He didn't know the temperature was may have been one of the guys who nailed him to the cross, or he was the one overseeing those who nailed him to the cross. He, he may have been the one who declared, put the sign up there, this is the king of the Jews. assume he's also the same centurion who praised God from the Gospel of Mark and also said this is the Son of God. What a, a grand declaration. But, but Luke is recording here as we want to see and know Jesus died for things you did not commit. then be 
prisoner. Notice here the centurion making a confession. You must make a confession. You, you must be able to see an innocent man die. But more than that, he's the promised Messiah. He's the lamb who will willingly take away your sin. He alone is the priest who can take you up into the heaven's presence with God Almighty. that you knew would lead to great suffering. Consider paradise. 